They're big. They're small. Some are fast and jazzy. Some are rock inspired. Sometimes they tell a story, and sometimes they throw you off the trail. But they're still here, and still happening at 7, 7.30, and 8 p.m. all across Broadway. The West End, and in your community. Overtures. Once a required mainstay of musical theater shows, they aren't as common now, but shows still use them. On today's episode, our first show, we discuss the overture. Will it survive much longer? Should it continue? Does it still have meaning and purpose? My guest and I will discuss this and more about musical theater along the way. This is From the Pit, where we talk musical theater, from overtures to exit music and everything in between. We talk about the music, we talk about the theater. So join me, Christopher King, for a view from the pit. Hey, I think this guy playing Sweeney Todd is my plumber. No, Daryl. This guy's a world class actor, and as in daylight as your plumber. No, it's my plumber. It says so in his bio. Apparently, the director discovered him doing karaoke. It's his first play. He didn't even audition. Are you kidding me? Shh. If we don't listen to the overture, we won't recognize the musical themes when they come back later. All right. I'm sorry. Even the fictional characters of Michael Scott and Daryl Philbin from an episode of The Office know the importance of listening to the overture. My first guest、uh, for the first episode is Stephen Greenfield.、Uh, he's a colleague of mine and、uh, an actor,、uh, music director,、uh, not always in that order. Sometimes it's different, <laughs> depending.、Uh, and a father now. Yeah, so it's very、true. exciting.、Um, so welcome, Stephen. Most, most importantly, a father, right? <laughs> most importantly, a father. I'm sure it is very much right now for you. Absolutely.、Um, but thank you for doing this today.、Oh, and welcome. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. What got me started was this article that was written in the New York Times. And、uh, it was, and I couldn't believe it. When I looked at it again, it was literally almost a,、um, 10 years to the day.、Right. So, October 1st of 2006, by Jesse Green. That's funny.、Um, <laughs> and just talking about you know, whatever happened to the overture. Right when、uh, Chorus Line came out, and so we're going back a while now,、yeah. uh, sort of basically from that time period, because Michael Bennett didn't want. Uh, he didn't want the audience to think that they weren't really in a show, like、right. part of the action. He just said uh, we, uh, they went straight into it. And the、yeah. idea was that they had created an overture for the show.、Uh, Marvin Hamlish had created one. Okay, I didn't know that. And he had it all done, and then this, they, they cut it. Right. <laughs> straight out. Same with there's no curtain call to chorus line, right? Right. Like it, yeah, it's also, they take away that, that artifice of it. Yeah, and it's not, it's not there. And I thought that's so interesting. And I guess, and so from that point onwards, Uh, we've been staring at a lot of straight into the show、right. 
things. Do you have any favorite overtures? I that you do. I do. Yeah. Um, Gypsy absolutely is a favorite. I think yeah. it's a favorite for a lot of uh, music theater nerds. You know, ones that I, I think I put uh, as an um, honorable mention are the, mm-hmm. the, the overture to Showboat. Oh, yeah. Uh, and Kiss Me Kate. And uh, there was one other. What, did I, what else did I... I think you had Promises, Promises. Uh, promises, Promises. Was that is there. really cool. You know, I haven't heard that one forever, so I had to listen to it again. And um, it's so great. Of course, it's Jonathan Tunick. Yes, I think they did all the arrangements yeah. with that. And you can hear how jazzy that yeah. score is. It's yeah, so and neat. the orchestra voices, I think, are so, they're so 60s cheesy, but it's like right away they, they throw you into there with, with the, those, uh, those four four-part harmonies with the women. It's so good. Yeah, it's very that yeah, Star Trek-y yeah. sound that they just don't do that much. <laughs> I think the reason. No. Taking your first one that you said, we talked about Gypsy. Mm-hmm. What what is it about Gypsy that that speaks to you? Uh, Gypsy has a has a, a nostalgia factor for me. It was my first professional show, so there's that that I will admit is is part of it for right. me. But um, I think the story of it is built so well. Like the first thing you hear in the Gypsy Overture is the the trumpet, dun 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 dun. Right, that we we get Rose's theme. I have a dream right off, right off the top of it. Um, and then it brings us into the kind of uh, goofiness of the vaudeville, uh, you know, that we're, mm. we, we're going to get thrown into right away in the, the story, right? But that acme whistle there, which is, is so much fun. Um, yeah, I think, I think what, I, what I love about the overture is, is how clear of a story journey there is bringing you through um, several of the themes of the show, but not, not for the purposes of making them earworms or, um, you know, selling sheet music or whatever. <laughs> like it's, it's about telling a story through the overture. And I think that's, that's part, that's probably the, the biggest part of why I find that overture so exciting. That's right. And it, and I, I agree. I think it's, and also it's become something like you mentioned before, very popular for lots of people. Mm-hmm. Like it's become kind of the, um, the benchmark of, I, of overtures, yeah. which is so interesting with, with Gypsy and other shows like that. Is it story that sticks out to you? What do you think it is that, that makes it interesting? Yeah, definitely with, with an overture like the Gypsy overture, I think that's the, it, what I find exciting about that overture is the story. And I, you reminded me when you mentioned Russell Bennett, that the other favorite overture that I had mentioned before was the South Pacific one. Right. And I think that one, uh, that overture to me, does feel far more um, music based, right? Like you, they, they're they're uh, introducing all of the the musical themes of the show so that they are somewhat recognizable when you hear them again. Mm-hmm. Um, although even with that one, I think the the you know the the, the overlapping echoing uh, ballet highs at the beginning mm-hmm. of that overture still like that's that to me i guess is more story based right that's that that's setting the kind of haunting theme that will mm-hmm. will will go throughout that show mm-hmm. yeah and then there's overtures like the um the kiss me kate one mm-hmm. and i actually can't remember if this is if the original uh kiss me kate was like this or if it's just the uh late 90s late 90s yeah, they did revival, 99, but, yeah, they yeah, think, yeah that's what i thought with the Marin Macy and brian stokes mitchell 
Um, if that if that if that's the way the overture has always been with the kind of another opening mm-hmm. starting and then going into the overture, yeah, and then going back into the song, right? Like it. Oh, that's it, a good question. It yeah. almost seems like a a very extended dance break, but but I'm but I, I, at least in the way that it's credited in that on that cast recording, it is credited as the overture, yeah, um, and it's a staged overture, which is another kind of interesting level <laughs> yeah, to. Totally. to um, you know, there's certain shows that are like that. Like, you know, you could argue that um, Runyon Land and Guys and Dolls is a is a staged overture, or maybe it's just a, a kind of dumb show with music. <laughs> right. um, but yeah, that's that's also a fascinating thing when 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 they start to kind of uh, stage the the overtures, which I think tends to happen a lot more now than it, it used to, right? That's right, yeah. And, and and you see it a lot. Even now, in some ways, they've actually changed the name. I mean, it's really more like a prologue. Yes, than yeah, it is. prelude. Yeah, yeah. And I think. I mean, obviously that's valid. And I, you know, in this article that you mentioned, it's true is actually Marvin Hamlish, you know, he commented basically saying that it's the click generation. So right. it's hard. And this is 2006. So it's 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just that he, he thinks that people need to be firing on all synapses before they um, can just settle into something. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. Um, but to me, there is, there is some, still something, uh, that's important about the overture. And I know I'm kind of jumping around in, in the topics that you wanted to chat about, but the, uh, although, yeah, the cynical side of me thinks that overtures, uh, both, you know, for opera, operetta, and then music theater, uh, were there to, um, make the songs, like I said, ear- earworms, sell sheet mm-hmm. music. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I think they're so important in terms of, of taking us, uh, out of the world around us, right? Like getting us off of our devices and uh, allowing us to really delve into the world of the show prior to the show starting, right? Yeah. Like if the show if the show starts and you've just turned off your device, your phone, uh, 15 seconds earlier, you're not really ready to get into the world of the show right away. I think you, you need that three minutes or more to, to kind of forget you know, your real life and, and, and delve into the world of the show. It, in a way, I'm sure there's many composers that would hate me for saying this, but in a way it, it kind of serves to do what, um, what movie previews do when you go to the movie theater, right? Where you, right. you start to kind of leave the real world and go into the world of, 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 of being entertained. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the overture is important for that. It, obviously overtures are, are way more uh, important than movie previews but, but kind of in, in the same way they, they serve it, it i think it should serve the same purpose yeah well it, i guess it um uh, it sets the genre where yeah. you, what the the moment you're about to see is yeah I, even previews do that because it sensitizes you to or desensitizes yeah. you to the volume to what's happening it gets sure. you really start yeah I, you know there's a certain there's something about that and there's also uh um especially nowadays when 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 our overture or when our um shows uh, sound so different from show to show. Mm-hmm. I mean, I say nowadays, but you know, contemporary musical theater in general ever, um, has been like that. Uh, I think there's also a part of it that, that the overture needs to be there to, to kind of um, get you accustomed to the musical language of the show. Mm. You know, that, that intro that you played where you talked about all the different kind of styles and I thought, oh right, that when you when you played the the Jesus Christ Superstar overture, I thought, oh that's you know that that is so important to hear at the beginning of the show because you're 
you're being thrown into the that musical language that 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 show's written to and same with you know Annie you get you get thrown into that kind of 20s pastiche uh of that show so that you're ready for it yeah yeah well i guess it, it, it's true and speaking you know uh, as both of us as actors and, and music directors and directors and stuff is that it's important to otherwise you'll miss some of that opening mm-hmm. sequence uh, I think if you if you aren't uh, attuned to it, yeah, and you know, think about how much information needs to be passed within a short amount of time totally. on the stage, and, and you know, especially in that sort of prelude. And, you know, just coming from West Side Story, it's yeah. interesting because there's not an overture, no, though there was one written. Oh, really? Which is interesting. Um, when we got the books for the uh, reduction for the the uh, the alternate orchestration for mm. the books, there was an overture in it. And in my, the original published, you know, version of the score, there is no overture, wow. right? It just starts with the prologue. So uh, all the, <laughs> I think it's like song zero or something, you know, it's like one of those things. So all the uh, orchestra was like, are we playing the overture? I said, you know, what overture? <laughs> there is no overture. And so they showed me the book and obviously I was like, oh, that's so funny. You know, and this is the other thing about it, and the, the article mentions this too. I don't know if it was Hamlish or not, or they'd said in this article, is that you don't really want to hear an overture with modern orchestrations. I mean, this is, you know, because orchestras are so small. Right. Well, generally now. Yeah. So, I mean, who wants to hear, you know, uh, some of the shows that you have to go into with like a five, six piece band? Right. You know? Well, and you, uh, I think one of the other questions that you had posed was, um, are they necessary? And then the kind of addendum to that, they're usually one of the first things to get cut. Mm-hmm. And I somewhat, although I'm, you know, I, I, I'm a supporter of the, the overture uh, staying in a show, but I, I do understand the need to cut an overture or at least to, to truncate it. Um, because yeah, like you're saying, when you're, when you're going from having a 40 piece orchestra to doing, you know, it was orchestrated for 40 pieces and now you're doing it with three. Um, the, there's only so long that, 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 you know, um, musical language can, can stay interesting to an audience before mm. they want you to move on. Right. Like right. I think of some of these orchestra, um, overtures that are, you know, eight plus minutes long when you're mm. only doing that with three instruments, it's not going to be interesting for eight no. minutes. So no. you can't do that whole thing. Right. Like, I mean, I know it's an opera or operetta, but uh, having done the, the Pirates of Penzance last summer with five instruments, again, that we hugely pared down the overture because it's 10 minutes long and five instruments isn't interesting for 10 minutes, right? No, no, not at all. There's only so many flavors that even if you're reorchestrating it, that you can continue, I think, that you can continue to, to add before the audience when there's no action on stage. And you know, in that case, the orchestra being even off stage, there's nothing for them to watch. They're just listening. They're going to 
get bored after yeah. a certain amount of time. And I certainly feel that too. And I'm sure even uh, Gilbert and Sullivan would agree with you. I'm sure at the time, if they knew your circumstances, yeah, yeah. they would have been like, yeah, no, that's not a good <laughs> idea. Uh, because you just don't get the full effect yeah. of what it is. And I think, you know, I've been at a couple of shows and I can't really think recently um, where I have heard almost a full overture with like three or four right. people. And you're like, I mean, that poor MD, I just, I know what it's like. Oh God. <laughs> It's just like it's like going to the dentist or something. Yeah, yeah. It's like, is it going to end? I feel bad. I mean, there's nothing keeping your interest. Yeah. Because I know as orchestrators, um, you know, because I have an interest in it, obviously, orchestrating too. And it's so interesting to read about, you know, this. But when you start to orchestrate, what they talk about first more than notes or rhythms or anything is color. Yeah, absolutely. So you can only get color from different instruments. I mean, yeah. it's the basis of orchestration. and you know. Yeah, and the overture and... I guess the on track as well. That's especially in the older shows. That's re- that was really the the orchestra's chance to shine, right? Mm-hmm. Because when they were when the actors were unamplified, uh, everything else, you know, they were, the orchestra was essentially playing pianissimo under the the, the actors for the rest of the show. Um, so I, I think there was an importance to an overture uh, back then as well. Like really, let's let's hear the music or mm-hmm. let's hear the, the orchestra because we're not going to really get that opportunity for the rest of the show. Mm-hmm. You know, we're in Vancouver and uh, we were ab- about as far away from New York as you get li- literally in the, the line. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> so do you think we see things differently here than than they do back east? Uh, absolutely. Like, you know, if we're comparing um, here to, to New York, I think we see things differently. Do we see things differently than uh, any other uh, city of our size in the in on the continent. I don't know about that. Um, like you said, it, it you know that uh, the, there's a music directors Facebook group, and that's from at least all over this continent, if not uh, from London as well. Uh, and I feel there's people kind of all talk about the same thing that they've been at. You know, how does anyone have uh, any ideas how I do this show with a third of the players or mm-hmm. a tenth of the players that it was. <laughs> that it was written for. Um, I'm very thankful actually in a way, and I don't know that any, many companies that have started to, to use them yet, but I'm thankful that, you know, licensing houses like MTI have started to realize that there's um, producers are finding it necessary to uh, do these shows with a reduced, well, obviously with a reduced cast, but with a reduced orchestra as well. And MTI has started to create reduced orchestrations, mm-hmm. um, although some of them, you know, still are, are probably too big for for some of our local companies to do. Sure, yeah. Um, but at least it's a start. It's a it's a it's a recognition that that uh, I don't think anyone ever wants to cut, but sometimes it's just a financial necessity. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you know, obviously, if everyone's on the same page and and wants the same end goal that's going to be simpler for everyone, right? Yeah. And then in West Side's a good example because, uh, you know, the original is like 25. Uh, the reduction that they did was still 18. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, it's a, still, it's a start. Yeah, <laughs> it's totally better than 25. Yeah. You know? uh, but again, you know, and I, how do you think about this too? I've noticed that a lot of Broadway shows now are starting to just straight up write for less players. Well, and too. I I think that's... Uh, a, a good step, I think. Uh, well, yes and no. Right. I think when it comes to, you know, as a regional uh, theater 
music director. I think that's a great step for me because that means that I will be able to recreate the sound of the show the way that it was intended to sound. Right. That's what all of us want to do, right? We want right. to completely maintain the, the 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 integrity of the show, um, or or maintain the 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 author's intentions. At the same time, you know, if a Broadway theater Broadway producer uh, is choosing to do that for their own budgetary reasons, it, there is there is part of it that's kind of a shame that a a Broadway musical, rather than having a 25 piece orchestra is now an orchestra of five, right? Like yeah. that right. In, in a way there was something uh, wonderful about seeing a, a musical in New York and being like, that's amazing. I mean, I remember seeing the uh, uh, revival of South Pacific and um, Bartlett sure. I, I think, I mean, this is obviously me projecting, but uh, <laughs> I've never, I've never chatted with him about it. <laughs> But I think he he was aware of how exciting it was to have the full orchestrations for you know a musical that's as romantic and and lush uh, sounding as as South Pacific uh, that he that he even referenced it you know the the um, that overtures you know with the, the the rolling valley highs at the beginning and then there's a certain part part I don't know how many minutes but not very far into the into the overture where there's a big timpani roll and the uh the the stage that was over the pit the pit was kind of covered by this i think lattice thing that part of the stage rolled back to reveal the orchestra mm. you know wow. mid tremolo all the, the the bows of the strings going and timpani roll happening and you saw this grand orchestra and then they went into some enchanted evening. Uh, and I was like, you know, it was, it was so, it was so moving and emotional because there was your full orchestra, at least as, I'm sure it was moving for everyone, but especially as a music <laughs> director, it was so moving because, Oh, that, that is so exciting to see that full orchestra playing that. So there is part of me that is like, Oh, that's, that's a shame that a Broadway, it's a shame if a Broadway orchestra isn't the size of a quote unquote Broadway orchestra, mm-hmm. but at the same time, if that's the if that's the reality of the the world that we're in now, I find it uh, helpful as a as a regional musical theater director, um, or mu- music director, when I can, uh, you know, maintain the author's intent in terms of the way that the music sounds. interesting listening to to that recording mm-hmm. right now uh in a funny way I, I mean this a little facetiously what i love about uh russell bennett's orchestrations is the it's almost it feels almost like a a, a peter and the wolf for adults right like you hear <laughs> every member of the orchestra kind of gets a moment you know I, 
I yeah. can almost imagine that overture being narrated in a voice going, and now meet the flutes, right? Because <laughs> then the flutes have these kind of yeah. flourishes. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you hear the whole family of the orchestra, right? Every instrument makes their, makes their um, necessary contribution to that overture. And there's something very, very special about that. I love right? that. Well, I mean, he... I mean, he was credited, I, I think, according to this book, with over 450 Whoa. shows. Now, of course, he didn't do them all necessarily. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he had Bits help, as, as they all do. But the same way with The King and I. The King and I is mm. beautiful like that, too. It has such a very clear um, opening. It sets the scene. It sets the yeah, mood. Yeah. And you know uh, what's going to come yeah. right away. And then it, what, what I liked about King and I, uh, just like all shows, is... Um, there's an intrinsic idea of taking you right into the story at the end of the overture. Right. So like the boat comes out yeah, uh, and then suddenly we're in the yeah, yeah. scene and uh, yeah, it's very cinematic, totally. though it's not cinematic. Yeah. But as opposed to the overture ending and then going on to the new thing. Yeah. That, that um, flow, that segue is, and especially now, like you, uh, you know, you're, you're kind of going back to your question about cutting o- overtures and how, how that happens often. Um, the creative team has to find a way to make that overture feel like a necessary part of the story, yeah. right? Um, it's extra work for the creative team, yeah, right? Absolutely. The easy yeah. choice is to is to cut it, mm-hmm. uh, and we're you know I'm definitely been guilty of of contributing to that sort of uh, that choice at times. Mm-hmm. Um, but the I think the the choice that needs to be made is is again about it, preserving the the integrity of that show, trying to figure out what was meant by the overture. Like why why is it why did they choose to bring up this many themes? Why are they why are they in the order that they are? Why you know why is this the song that ends the overture? Like all of those things, um, I think like they all just need to, need to be considered with the same amount of integrity that that a creative team considers every other aspect of the show right and right. i think i think an overture is just it's a it's a bigger hurdle because there's no lyrics there's it's usually not danced i mean actually sometimes there are lyrics i guess in, over, in an overture mm-hmm. um such, such as the showboat one has the the lululus from the the chorus they do um why do you think directors do that do they do they just ignore it or have you how do you think they feel about it? Uh, I think, I, I think some directors hate overtures, uh, with rehearsals and, and prep time with, with uh, all theater, not just musicals we're we're so, we're obviously so limited, um, that I think the focus ends up going to how to make, how do in, in, given our circumstances, how do we make everything else work? Mm. And the overture is kind of low on the, the totem pole. I mean, uh, I think I think it completely depends on the show. Like I said, I love the Kiss Me Kate overture, uh, or at least the revival overture. Again, I'm not sure if that's the way it was always written, but there's something. Uh, there's just some. There was something beautiful. I remember seeing that production, um, where, you know, the they start um, Lily's uh, assistant starts singing. Another open another show. We get I don't know a verse or two in it. Uh, we've seen like, you know, the stagehand come and move the ghost light and all the, you know, we, we've seen like early morning moving into the theater mm-hmm. and then we go into the overture and it was, it was so beautifully staged because each character kind of entered on their theme, right? Lily, um, so in love mm-hmm. 
was her coming into the theater, right? And so, and you got that, like, it, um, I can't even remember who directed that production, but it was, it was smart in a way because it, we also got to hear the characters, um, we, we got to, you know, uh, identify a certain theme with that character before yeah. they sang it, right? Like, Talking about, yeah, Peter and the Wolf, it's yeah. so true. It, it it really does. So by the time don't... Lily sang So in Love, like, we oh, already that's... knew that was her, right? That was yeah. her emotional truth. We knew that from the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. Even though we didn't, we weren't aware of it. Another opening, another show. In Philly, Boston, or Baltimore—a chance for stage folks to say hello. When Shakespeare was originally performed, and they still do this sometimes too, one of the actors or somebody would would come out at the beginning of the play and literally tell you the entire story right. before they performed it. This is a story of you know Romeo and Juliet, uh, star-crossed yeah. lovers, and in the end they make a bad choice and they both die essentially. Right. So yeah, yeah. they tell you the whole story, and yeah. then and now the show, and right. then they then they would perform it, but it didn't detract no, from it. But I like to think that an overture has a similar. Uh, purpose. Yeah, a, fr- a friend of mine um, mentioned that recently to me, um, where she said, "There's not that every show should be written this way, but there's some, there is actually something fulfilling to an audience about being given a promise off the top of the show and then watching that promise be delivered, right? Which is right. kind of what um, you know the, the the prologue and Romeo and Juliet does. We we're told what's going to happen, and then we just watch it happen. And there, there's, mm-hmm. there is something satisfying. And I think you're right. An overture in the, in the same way um, does the same thing, right? We mm-hmm. we we're introduced to themes. We're in, we're taken on an emo- if it's a you know well written and well orchestrated overture, we're taken on an emotional journey that, or we're we're given a taste of the emotional journey that we're we're about to be taken on. Right to wet the yeah. appetite of some kind of your prime you. Yeah. My Fair Lady is a good example too, mm-hmm. because it's really why can't the English? I mean, there's an overture that happens, yeah. and then we go right into why can't the English. But but I was thinking of My Fair Lady actually when you were asking me about my favorite overtures, and I I didn't include it, but there was one thing in the My Fair Lady overture that I love, and that's how the the end of it, um, the end of the overture morphs into the scene of the the upper class leaving the opera, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a good there's a good um, example of an overture, I think, unless I'm mistaken. But I think I'm almost positive that that, that overture uh, doesn't doesn't end. There's no button to the overture, right? The overture right. kind of morphs into the the staging. Yeah, I think we hear the bells of St. Paul's, yeah. right? I mean, where you go into, I think it's right into Covent Garden. Right, I think you're right. Here, yeah. um, but I love how the there's a, at a certain point everyone's leaving, and uh, in in the overture you hear. Dun, 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 dun. And then before we would mm-hmm. get to Lady of, uh, of uh, London Bridge, that's when uh, Freddie knocks into Eliza and forces makes her spill her flowers. So good. And I think that's such a clever reference because, you know, we hear the, we almost hear the title of the show musically stated, right? We get London mm. Bridge is falling down, my fair. 
Um, and it's also, there's, there's a reference for us because we don't, you know, it's never, she's never called my fair lady in the show. It's not like, so there we, at least we have, um, it's, it's smart of whoever came up with that to, mm-hmm. to reference where the title My Fair Lady came, comes from, right? Comes so from, great. From, comes from the, the nursery song there. And um, Pygmalion doesn't roll off the tongue. No, Pygmalion is, isn't a great <laughs> title for, uh, to be sung in a musical. musical. has an overture yes and i obviously like we're talking oklahoma we're talking about two guys who are being as revolutionary in the form as possible given the circumstances right you can only be so revolutionary when this is the status quo and their first show and their first show right you can only think think so far ahead yeah um but there was so much made about the fact that oklahoma opens without an ensemble number it opens with uh um you know after the kind of uh pastoral mm-hmm. uh you know flute Opening, and everything yeah. yeah you you hear there's a held note and you hear a voice singing off stage like there's so that it's it's revolutionary in the off stage voice there's no real uh orchestration other than the held note under him there's no chorus on stage it's just an old lady churning butter and i think the next step in making that revolutionary is there's no overture, right? Right. Like if the mm. show just started with that, I think that that's the the um, yeah, that's that that would have been their next revolutionary step. Who knows? I'm putting you know words in the mouths of Rogers and Hammerstein, but that that would be an overture that I I would go maybe that one isn't necessary, <laughs> right? <laughs> There's a bright golden haze on the meadow. There's a bright golden haze on the meadow. The corn is as high as an elephant's eye. And it looks like it's climbing clear up to the sky. Oh, what a beautiful street should be orchestrating and arranging show i mean no. shows i mean that is a, another it's job a huge skill set that i mean uh, even composers yeah never did that no there's yeah, not yeah. a chance like R- richard rogers was like i'm not touching anything <laughs> of my music yeah i'm giving it to someone i trust sondheim, who knows what they're doing yeah sondheim yeah. who could probably do a fairly okay job yeah. would gives it to you know somebody to do L- that orchestration. Yeah. like like you know i mean you think about i mean how much jonathan tunick has created yeah. the Sondheim sound, of which Absolutely. I love. I mean, no one has done more with less yeah. players than <laughs> Jonathan Tunick. It's true. I mean, his use of trumpet mutes alone. I mean, you read a diatribe yeah. about it, but that's a good example of one. Yeah. yeah. How did you get to be here? What was the moment? One other thing I was thinking, we were talking about the the, the um, endangered species that the overture sometimes seems to be. And I wonder if that correlates in a way because uh, film, uh, you know, I 
would say film is uh, arguably the the North American medium now, as opposed to you know theater probably was the medium you know in the the first half of the last century, mm. but very much it's film now. Um, and if you look at films from you know fifty to a hundred years ago, they I don't know, they're making big films a hundred years ago, but you know what I mean? Sure. Uh, there were extended opening credit sequences too that right. had mm. underscoring and not, there wasn't action happening. There were just names. Being names. Yeah. On the, going on the screen. Black and white names. In Black, fact, just wow. like, there's no color, <laughs> but that isn't, I wouldn't say that's the norm anymore. Right. You don't really get an opening credits sequence anymore. You, mm. you, sometimes they show you some of the names, Sometimes they show you the title in the opening credits, but there's always action happening, right? right. That, those opening credits are, are kind of an afterthought that you're not really paying attention it's to. True. Yeah. And I wonder if there's anything to be said about the, you know, uh, theater affecting the way film was made mm-hmm. in, you know, when, when film was a nascent art form uh, or at least commercial film was a nascent art form and, that now how it's gone back the other way film now affects very much the way theater is made and i wonder yeah. if the fact that there's no longer opening credit sequences in most films has made writers and producers and directors uh you know consciously or not less uh or more reluctant to to having an overture in their show what's well, it's a good point and you're probably correct i i uh what i think it, what i happy about is that i know that there's a section of the population that misses those opening credits a lot in movies too so i think it's good because it says just like you and i we miss certain overtures you know in certain things and i think maybe it'll make it makes us more discerning about when we use them yeah and maybe that's you know we shouldn't use them when they seem appropriate absolutely like i think we we were talking about that with um when do you cut an overture in a regional production and when does it stay in and how I think the the important key and key to that is uh can it be can you use it uh, story wise can you, do you or have you put in can you put in the extra effort and work to um to make it work story wise mm-hmm. and I think absolutely I think what, what you're saying then for the creators of the show I think that's the step too right like does the show need an overture in order to to bring us into the world of the story in order to help us tell the story then yes but if it's just going to be you know a waste of time and right if it's if, if the story is going to have more effect if we we start right away of course don't don't Absolutely. write an overture well it's like it just make the creative decision that yeah. makes sense you know and but here's a good example what is a james bond film without those it, opening absolutely credits? i was I thinking mean, they, of that as i was talking about the cut credits but i love that they they make it part of it still like it's it's i mean and it's and not purely for nostalgic reasons i I mean some great stuff in in those openings even in the new ones but yeah man does it ever set a scene for sure you know exactly what you're getting into absolutely yeah and um you know i think it'd be weird to just like boom opening sequence of a james bond film and be like it's not james bond you know and so it changes the genre and i think that's interesting yeah yeah it brings us into the world and the style of the show so that we we buy it, right? We're not, uh, we're invested, I guess. It, it gives yeah. us that time to get invested in, in what this, what the story is going to be. And I love that. Um, so a couple things just about you. So we can, we can leave the overtures behind, yes. but um, <laughs> I know, sorry, we talked a little bit longer, but That's great. I think you agree with me on this. 
music director or musical director? Uh, I have recently, in the last few years, uh, moved to saying music director um, for a few reasons. And I think the biggest one was that I kind of got tired of, of when I told people I was a musical director, that also meaning that I had to explain what I do, right? Because mm. I think they hear, I think people hear a musical director and rightly so assume that that means you directed the musical. <laughs> right. Whereas if right. the title is music director, that means that you directed the music, which I think is a lot clearer and more efficient. Um, I know there's also a movement in the in the States in general, I think, to, to move towards music director, whereas musical director is a, a more um, British choice. Although I, you know, I'm very much a, an, an Anglophile, so I, you know, you'd think I would want to stick with musical director. But I think there's there's a clarity behind the job title being music director that that isn't with musical director. I agree. Tell me a bit of what's coming up next for you. Uh, I will be uh, music directing uh, uh, and acting in um, a Charlie Brown Christmas at Carousel Theater. Great for the Christmas season. Uh, oh, I heard they were doing that. That's great. Yeah. Is it an adapted version? So it's. The TV special, uh, oh, uh, okay. uh, you know, uh, um, an adapted version of the TV, uh, the teleplay for the TV special. Um, so it's all that terrific Vince Guaraldi music. Oh, great. Um, yeah, and I'm I'm playing Schroeder, which is you know obviously a nice fit for a, for an actor pianist. That's great. Um, yeah, so that's that'll be fun, and uh, you know I think it's a, it's a, it's such a um, such a beautiful story, and I've been going back to reading. Well, I don't actually I hadn't read a lot of them before, uh, but reading the the Peanuts uh, strips and mm-hmm. uh, and they're so smart. I I yeah. I just love the the uh, the kind of darkness in a way of mm. the of the how cynical the characters are. Right, like right. they're all of them. I know people have said this about Charlie Brown many times, but I think all of them they're they're whatever nine years old going on forty. Right, right. Like they're just the weight of the adult world is on them, even though they're so little. And I kind of love that. That's great. I think all the successful comics do that. Yeah. Well, the good ones. Yeah. 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 That's great. Um, So when does it, when does that happen? That opens uh, first week of December and then runs uh, until Christmas Eve. Nice. Yeah. Well, there you go. We'll we'll leave that there. Awesome. That's great. Uh, Thank you for coming in today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. This is such a treat. Good. Well, we'll we'll do it again. Hopefully you can come back. And we'll talk about something else. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks, Stephen. You're most welcome. Thank you. That was my conversation with Stephen Greenfield. Originally from Calgary, Alberta, he has been based out of Vancouver since 2006. He has been nominated for many awards, winning a Jesse Richardson Award for Outstanding Artistic Creation, Theatre for Young Audiences, and an Ovation Award for his music direction of The Spitfire Grill. He is an actor, music director, and also a faculty member at Capilano University's theater program. I'm Christopher King. Thanks for joining us. From the Pit. For more information on the show and our guests, please visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash fromthepitpodcast and our website at fromthepitpodcast.com and join the conversation.